0: sometimes rejection is redirection right sometimes failure is actually where you do your greatest learning right and so i would say trust in the process and believe that all that you need lies within so no matter what life puts in front of you like you have a reserve a power inside of you a knowledge inside of you an intelligence inside of you that if you can learn to tap into it you're going to be fine it doesn't matter what life puts in front of you and you can trust that whatever life puts in front of you is exactly what you need even if it doesn't look the way that you desire and that you that you hope
1: what up what up welcome to rel and friends podcast i am rel and this is the podcast where i interview my friends Now, I am fortunate enough to be surrounded by a community of creative professionals. I myself am a creative professional. I have been a videographer, cinematographer for a little over two decades now. And during my time as a professional, I've made a lot of friends and I'm lucky enough to be able to pull from this community. And you know, I wanted an excuse to really go back, circle back to a lot of friendships that I don't really get to check into very often and just talk all things creative. There's a lot of nuances when you are surviving as a creative, a lot of ups and downs. uh, And I'm hoping to also build some transparency in some of the talk. There's a lot of secrets that go around in the creative world. So my goal here is to really open up myself and my community to anyone that wants to listen, wants to learn, gain some insights, wants to be inspired. I myself, am looking for some inspiration, looking to my community for inspiration and insight. So let's do it together. Welcome to Rowland Friends. So some updates from me, I've been quite busy this year currently working on a project with a company called paraffin they are a financing company who finance small to medium businesses we're working on a storytelling series with them which has been really exciting shout out to everyone at paraffin I am wrapping up a project with green lining incest 2 that's in collaboration with my i2f family you will hear I2F a lot. As a matter of fact, the interview today is with one of the founders of I2F, Tomas, longtime friend, collaborator. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I2F stands for Idea to Form. You will be hearing a lot about them from me. But yeah, staying really busy. Like The projects have been really good. I've been learning a lot. Right now, I am trying. I've been traveling a lot for work, which is great. I love traveling. But I'm struggling with traveling with everything i need in a production on a plane i have a big roller case a big pelican case pelican air that fits all my gear some lights and then i have one of those tall ones that fit stands and various things but they're packed and there's always something i feel like i'm missing and how do you travel with sandbags all my people that travel out there i need tips do you travel with sandbags because that is something I love to have on set, but when I'm shooting remote, I rarely have that and it feels very dangerous. Let me know. Let's get into some videographer news. Just saw that DJI debuted its lightweight, obstacle-intelligent Mini 4 Pro drone. That launched in late September and It sounds exciting. I personally... I have a drone. I've crashed one, and I'm on my second one. It's the lower-end Mini. I think it's a Mini 2, so it's it's getting old. This obstacle-intelligent Mini is appealing to me. I don't want to be a drone expert, but I want to be able to get those shots. Any time I have a production, and I know I will need... Drone shots, I hire a drone operator, but it'd be nice if I can get those shots myself. Sometimes I have visions that I can't really communicate, so, or even just doing it for fun. I need, I really need to get better at droning. Maybe I'm just getting lazy, but anyone out there that is listening, did you get the Mini 4 and how do you like it? And if that is not the best drone to get, let me know what is. I'm looking for something that is easy that has some sort of obstacle and intelligent technology something that if there's an auto feature to get all of the auto shots that i want that'd be great something that could track something moving without me being an expert i do love flying a drone because it feels like you're playing a video game but I also don't like it because I get terrified that I'm going to crash my drone and, you know, just be out several hundred dollars again. So I'm chicken. So who can recommend a drone that's chicken proof? Holler. So we're going to head into this interview with my guy, Tomas Alvarez from I2F. But before we do that, I got to let you guys know I'm on social media and that's how I want to hear from you guys. If you're on IG, hit me up r-e-l dot m-o-v all my real ones know about that m-o-v life hit me ig is the only place i'm active i have a tiktok account but i know it's important to have one but it's just so hard for me to like really be active on that man i feel like i'm a preteen every time i'm on there this podcast is going to help me populate that account so stay tuned for that But right now, if you really want a response, hit me up on ariel.mov and we'll be in touch. Now, I am extremely happy to introduce my good friend Tomas Alvarez as the first interview of the podcast. He's an expert in community development, youth development, facilitation, social entrepreneurship, impact investing, design. He calls himself a social entrepreneur, which is the the perfect way I would describe him. Tomas is someone that is a really man of the people. He truly cares about community. And I feel very fortunate to have been introduced to Tomas in my college days through my social circles. And we've always kept in touch over the years. I hope everyone listening can take away some things that I take away every conversation that i have with tomas he spits gems every other word is a, a quotable it's something to live by i have and i mentioned this in the interview i have a note in my laptop that i go to often and it's just called tomas and it's filled with quotes that i've heard from him anytime i just need a reminder or pick me up i'll go through a few of those and and there's always something in there so i advise everyone to do the same thing give it a listen you know and then Maybe go back and give it another listen and write down those quotables that you hear. Because I promise you, there's a lot of gems. And if you want to follow Tomas, his social media IG is Tomas Alvarez III. That's T-O-M-A-S-A-L-V-A-R-E-Z-I-I-I. And then also Idea to Form. That's the company that he co-founded and I have been also a big part of in the last couple of years. That's I-D-E-A, the number two, F-O-R-M. Lots of great work. Some of the best work I've been doing. So make sure you check that out. And without further ado, my man Tomas, let's go. Can you tell me your favorite rap line?
0: Favorite rap line is KRS-One, control your subconscious magnet. Watch what you think, cause you attract it. Oh, uh, you go straight to the teacher. Law of attraction, man. Yeah, Law of attraction. Yeah. <laughs> But watch what you say because you attracted. Control your subconscious magnet from pulling in havoc. Who am I, the MC?
1: So, Tomas has been my friend for over two decades now. Tomas, I've always seen you as not only a good friend, but a mentor, kind of my psychiatrist at some point <laughs> for the longest. Like, throughout all my toxic relationships growing up, you've always been there to give me advice. And then, one very specific memory. That pops in my head. Tomas actually married me and my wife. He officiated our wedding. And a memory from that day was... When we were officially married, he introduced us as Mr. and Mrs. Munoz. <laughs> <laughs> Which is cool, but my last name is Nunez. <laughs> my, my sister's last name is Munoz. That's yeah, why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I remember you said that. The cool thing is I don't think anyone noticed, you know what I mean? <laughs> but you know, it was the moment and you said Munoz, but it's all right. <laughs>
0: Besides that, everything else was perfect. Oh, my God. I forgot about that. That's
1: hilarious. (laughs) I had one Uh, job, one job. one job. But it was beautiful. Everything else was beautiful, man. It was a lovely day. Uh, I don't think that was the biggest mess-up of the day. My wife has a long list of mess-ups, so I can bring that up later. (laughs) But yeah, let's jump right into Tomás, the man himself. First, what would you say are your creative skill sets, like physically, like like if there was a creative project where you could take from start to finish, what would it be? So I think definitely connecting
0: the dots. I'm a dot connector. I feel like strategy, I'm a strategizer as well. You know, seeing patterns, seeing behind corners, forecasting trends. You know, I think that those are things that, you know, I'm talented and have a knack for, but I also have tremendous vision. And so I love you know, home remodeling projects. I love flipping, you know, furniture, turning it into something else. You know, when I look at something or somebody, I don't see it for what it is. I see it for what it can be. And I think that that is a gift of mine is the gift of vision. I also have played the role in many of my collaborators and communities, the role of catalyst. So I think I have a lot of enthusiasm. I have a lot of passion. I think that that inspires people and folks want to feel that they want to be a part of something significant big and i'm also very purpose driven so i think that all those things kind of combine to allow me to be the social entrepreneur that i am and to collaborate with others in service of making the world a better place
1: definitely and just to add on to your interior design ability and architecture ability so when i was doing my tv show back in the day we had a studio redesign for the last few seasons, and Tomas basically built it by hand. <laughs> he built the entire thing by hand and just showed up one day with all this wood and put it all together, and I was amazed. I didn't even know you had that skill set, yeah. and then you just showed up with like brand new studio, so thank you for that.
0: <laughs> Said design. My, my dad helped uh, build that DJ booth. Okay.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, amazing. And your dad's a DJ, that, yeah. That. Yeah, Yes, yeah,
0: yeah. he is. He's a DJ. I grew up with music. Very eclectic taste of music. So, yeah.
1: One of the first biggest projects I remember you doing was Beats, Rhymes, and Life. I'd love if you can kind of like talk about that a little bit. Sure.
0: So in 2004, I pioneered one of the country's first hip-hop therapy programs. I did that in Berkeley, California, while I was working as a school social worker. And really, it was wanting to engage young men of color in a meaningful experience, hold space for them to talk about the things that were challenging in their life, and to do it through a medium that they felt comfortable with, which for them, it was hip hop. And for me growing up, it was hip hop. And so when I was going to get my master's in social work, I was thinking a lot about what does healing look like for communities of color it kept bringing me back to hip hop. And so I saw an opportunity to innovate, co-create a new model for therapy for young folks of color and call it that hip hop therapy. It was at a time in the early two thousands when a lot of other clinicians were also experimenting with the use of hip hop in a therapeutic setting. So I started a program that was very impactful and realized that I needed to further advance this new model. So the program kind of snowballed into a nonprofit organization. And soon I found myself as the executive director of a nonprofit and, you know, overwhelmed, but that's a good thing, right? I mean, it's good to be pushed beyond your comfort, you know, boundaries, and that's where you do your most growth and learning. And so I learned what it meant to be an executive director of a community-based nonprofit and how to build an organization with others with community artists, with young folks that came through our programs that eventually became staff. And so, uh, yeah, the organization is celebrating its 20th year next year. I transitioned out in 2015 as the executive director, founding executive director, and they've uh, continued to grow leaps and bounds. They're in multiple states now and have built a huge volume of work and impact in the lives of young folks who, you know, traditional forms of therapy didn't work for a lot of young folks you know especially since mental health tends to be pathology based deficit focused eurocentric you know hip hop therapy is really strength based it's youth centered it's culturally relevant and so you know this was a huge innovation for the field and it's work that I'm incredibly proud of and it's also where I realized that my purpose in this life is really to be a social entrepreneur is to build organizations that are making the world a better place and support organizations. It's so what I'm doing now. My current work with Idea to Form is supporting other social entrepreneurs and other organizations that are addressing, you know, some of the biggest challenges of our time.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I love that title, social entrepreneur. I was trying to think of a title that best describes you. That's it, right there. So you started talking about I2F, which is what you founded. I'm on board with the team as well. Can you kind of just expand on what I2F and explain the multi dimensional design philosophy? Absolutely.
0: So, Idea to Form is a collaborative design studio that I helped to co found along with my longtime collaborator, Lex Valdez, who's an amazing digital artist. And Lex and I have been friends for over 25 years and really collaborators for over 25 years. I met Lex when I was a freshman in college, she was a sophomore in high school. And we were doing youth organizing, organizing young folks through the Chicano student movement. And uh, the collaboration has continued for 25 years. And so Lex was the graphic designer and creative director for Beach Rhymes of Life. I always had a lot of friends that were creatives. And so while I was uh, executive director, we had formed a creative team, a comms team, to support all of the organization's communication needs. We call that team Idea to Form. And so... We always felt like it had a lot more potential. And in 2018, we saw the need of other nonprofits around marketing and comms and organizational development. And we started this company which specializes in design for social impact. And so uh, we call it a collaborative studio because we collaborate. Some of our team members are full-time employees and other team members are independent contractors that are doing their own things that hop in on projects when they're needed but it's uh, highly collaborative. We have, uh, you know, over 14 team members across five states and two countries, United States and Mexico. And we really wanted to pioneer our own design philosophy, which we call multi-dimensional design. And so really, it was looking at, you know, what folks were doing in the field of design around human-centered design and design thinking and trying to take that to another level but really have it be informed by a lived experience of folks of color who are often the closest to the problems which we believe are also because of that closest to the solutions and so we wanted to leverage our expertise our lived experience and draw from the knowledge base of our ancestors and of communities of color that are some of the most resourceful and innovative out there you know human-centered design talks about the introduction of constraints to fuel innovation and that always makes me laugh because for communities of concentrated disadvantage they're constantly innovating because they have to out of necessity right so if you want to see some of the greatest social innovation or innovation out there go to communities that are marginalized that are oppressed that are dealing with extraordinary circumstances you know you'll see some of the greatest innovation because it's how they get their needs met and that's really the movement work that we try to build off of at Idea to Form is the ways that, you know, recognizing that communities are experts on their own needs and that they are completely capable of solving their own problems. And, you know, we see ourselves as a supporter of that work. And that's what we want to do through Idea to Form is work with community-based organizations and social entrepreneurs who are trying to transform their communities and build a world that we know is possible.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it, man. I've been working a lot closer with you and the team in the last couple years, and it's some of the best work I've done, man. Like, not only does it make me feel good about what I'm doing, but it challenges me to become better. And we just spoke yesterday. Like, every new project we're approached with is better than the last one. Like, you know, what we produce is better than the last one. I see the poster in the back, too. Mm -hmm. Yep, yeah. That was was the one going deep. That was a film we did really early this year, which seems like so long ago. (laughs) but. That was a turning point, man. Like, yeah. I feel like for I2F, but also for me, like on a personal level, I've been doing video for, what, almost 30 years now. It's crazy. And mm-hmm. and like, you know, it's just cool that we're entering a new stage that feels like it's really just the beginning, man. <laughs> Again, you know, which is awesome.
0: Yeah. I was a part of, for a couple of years, this initiative through Ashoka and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation called the Children's Wellbeing Initiative. And we were looking at, you know, is there a formula for promoting the well-being of children? And what is it that these organizations across the country are doing to promote that? And what we noticed was that there was three things that these programs and organizations had in common. They were promoting a positive sense of self, belonging, and purpose. And in realizing that, I was like, oh, well, that's it. It's that simple, right? Like if we want to have meaning in our life, happiness in our life, well-being, it's like we all need that, not just children, right? Is a positive sense of self, Belonging and purpose, right? And like, that's what we're building an idea to form is certainly a sense of purpose that we use our gifts, you know, in service of making the world a better place, a sense of belonging, because we're building a community. It's not just a collaborative design studio. We want to support each other personally, professionally, holistically. And, you know, also that sense of self is to embrace the gifts that, you know, we've come into this world with and the ones that we've developed as we evolve yeah. And really define who we are not have those labels or limitations imposed upon us. Right. And so I'm happy to be doing this work would not be possible without our team without our community. And we just continue to grow. We're now in year six. And so we're no longer a startup. We've been going through our growing pains, but we're figuring it out. And we're also have an amazing portfolio and body of work. As you said, it just continues to get Better and better. And, yeah, man. You know, the sky's the limit.
1: You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see it. I see it, man. So I wanted to ask, what made you choose? I mean, everything you've done has been community focused. You know, what made you choose to dedicate your life to serving community? I mean, you know, there's the
0: quote, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. You know, I feel like for me, my mom made a hard decision. When she chose to have kids, she had a terminal illness. She was diagnosed with lupus in her teens and got pregnant when my sister in her last semester at college was the first in her family to graduate from high school, go to college. She was the eldest of five children and literally was faced with the decision because she knew that she was likely not going to live you know, past her twenties to have kids or to finish school. And so she chose to have my sister and then also knew that it was her purpose to bring two children into this world, a boy and a girl. She knew that even before she got pregnant with me. And so had us back to back. And within two years after having me, she passed away. And so she never had the opportunity to be the teacher that she wanted to work with children in the way that she always dreamed of. But both me and my sister have worked with children. My sister is an elementary school teacher. And of course, you know, through hip hop therapy and Beach Rhymes Life, I worked with young folks for many, many years. And so, yeah, for me, you know, the gift of life, a purposeful life, I feel like every day that I'm in service of community, I honor the sacrifice that my mom made to bring us into this world and honor her purpose. And it's the way that I honor herself, but also myself, right? Because I know that I've been blessed with certain abilities and skills and And I don't take those for granted. And I believe that, you know, what you give out, you get in return. And so if I'm pouring love into my friends, into my family, into my community, you know, I'm not doing it to get a return, but it often comes with so much support for the next project Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I'm trying to get off the ground that really relies on support of others. There's no way I would have been able to do all the things that I've managed to do and be a part of in my 25 plus years of doing this work as a social entrepreneur without the support of my community. And so, um, and I wouldn't have that if I didn't pour into my community. And so, yeah, for me, it's a sense of duty, but also it's just a passion of mine. I love it, you know, it it lights me up.
1: Yeah, and you just, you feel that reward on a different level, man, Mm -hmm. like, you know, you've managed to make this work make money too. And you know, it's volunteer work traditionally, you know what I mean? Yeah. All right, listen up guys. I'm sorry to do this. I gotta take a quick break from this interview to let you guys know about something very special I have going on. About three years ago, I created this company called Art of Storytelling. And basically what we do is we sell cassette tapes of Slick Rick's The Art of Storytelling. Just kidding. So I run a full service production company. We do everything from ideation, pre-production, production, production, post-production, Very much geared around solving problems through storytelling. So the next time you're in a brainstorm meeting with your boss and he says, we need to create a video to create impact or to make a splash for some sort of initiative. Send them my way. I promise you'll be the hero. You'll be the office hero once they get that beautifully shot vertical video that everyone watches on their phones. Hit me up. Rail.mov on IG. Chances are I have a video that you need already. Let's talk it through. All right, back to the program. But yeah, that's a good segue. Let's get into the segment that I call For the Love of Money. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a long history of doing community work. You built your own nonprofit. So specifically, I want to know what your best year has been and what your worst year has been if you win, to share that. <laughs> Yeah. So with Idea to Form specifically,
0: as I mentioned, we are a for-profit company. We're six years in now. We're structured as a S corporation, LLC. And really I refer to us as a social enterprise. Although we are not a nonprofit, you know, we exist to be in service of organizations that serve community that are most of them are nonprofits. And so the goal for our company, obviously, is to have impact, you know, to be of service, but also to have sustainability, to be able to build a team, sustain that team and grow it over time. And to do that, you need resources. You have to be profitable. And also, too, like, I believe that there is a culture of martyrism, especially in communities of color and survivor's guilt that we really need to overcome. Uh, we're so used to dealing with constraints and being immersed in a scarcity mindset that it could be hard to make that shift to an abundance mindset, one that is saying, you know, I'm not gonna feel like I have to hold on to this because there's not enough, right? Like I'm gonna share in my knowledge, in you know, my time, my talent, my treasure, because there's so much out there, right? There's an abundance of that stuff out there. And so, you know, I think for us as a company, you know, we've tried to take that philosophy from day one to now and every iteration in between, you know, we started just Lex and I, two people in 2018 and we've grown to over 14. We have about half of that team is full-time employees. You know, our best year financially was in year four, you know, we took revenue from year one that was a little over hundred thousand to over 1.5 million in four years. And so it was tremendous growth and it was also a lot of hard work. And what I realized was, you know, after that fourth year, we were exhausted. We really didn't have the systems in place to be operating at that level. So year five, we decided to really take a step back and backfill some of that growth and build out our systems and hire middle management and project managers. It took us about a year to really... Built that new system out. And in that year, you know, you can only juggle that work with so many other projects. And so, you know, we had a contraction year in year five. We didn't make any cuts. So we kind of went into debt, you know, to offset that loss that we had. But it put us in a really great position this year. We have a solid team, we have solid systems. We're really striving to live into our values every single day. And so it's an investment, right? I look at debt differently. You know, I look at losses differently. Like it was intentional. It was a decision that we made. Right. And sometimes you have to go slow to go fast. Right. And sometimes you have to take two steps back in order to go five steps forward. Right. And if you don't, you're going to implode. Shit is going to fall apart or you're going to get burned out. You know, some things are just not sustainable. And so. My experience as a social entrepreneur and a builder and leader of organizations has taught me that, you know, there's a saying, if you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go together. And sometimes you got to slow down in order to go together, right? Because you've got to build internal alignment. You got to get everybody on the same page. You know, you're only as strong as your weakest link, right? And so like you really have to invest in your team and invest in your weak spots and your pain points because those will eventually come back to hurt you.
1: Yeah. They're going to yeah, get man. in the way. For sure. Finishing in the red one year doesn't necessarily mean like you're eating top ramen every day. You know what I mean? Like all of that year, like we were working closely together and man, you still looking fly. You're still eating good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like does taking a loss mean that you can't pay rent or, you know what I mean? As a business, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it looks different for
0: everyone, right? And, you know, for us, we really invest in our people because it's our people that make this work possible. And when I say we invest in them, you know, we try as hard as we can to pay market value for people's talent. We try to invest in people holistically with opportunities for professional development, you know, holistic health, you know, and if we had more money, we do even more, you know, we would offer tuition reimbursement and, you know, loan forgiveness and, You know, all those things that we deal with as human beings in our personal lives that absolutely can get in the way of our ability to be present at work and do our best and give our best. If we're struggling with student loans over here, it's going to be hard to perform over here, right, and lend our talents to the work that we do and the teams that we're a part of. And so, you know, for us, yeah, like I said, you know, going into debt several small business loans I've applied for since we started the company. We don't have investors, you know, it's completely self-funded. Yeah. You know, the way I see it is like, I'm betting on my team. I'm betting on myself, you know, and folks have gone into debt for clothes or cars or, you know, homes, you know, like I'm going into debt to build a team that doesn't exist that, you know, has the capability of making huge contributions to these amazing causes, you know, in the world. And like you said, the movie in the back, right? Like that film that we showed in Sacramento for policymakers, like had potentially a huge impact. It was trying to reach the people who create the laws that can impact, you know, groups that are working towards climate justice throughout the state of California. Like that's a huge opportunity for impact. So, yeah, for me, it's uh, when you invest in people It's not the same thing as going into debt for things that make you feel good in the moment, but, you know, are not necessarily going to
1: have a return. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you, man. And I just want to say, like, you know, for me as a contractor of I2F, like I've never been asked to take a pay cut, you know, I've never been asked to do more than like what I normally would. And that's appreciated, man, like even though these business moves are happening, like you're not asking your team to take any less, you know what I mean? And I have been asked in the past from other companies that have millions of backing, you know what I mean? Just Mm -hmm. to make like some kind of financial goal. So like it's something very different and something that I'm like super honored to be a part of, man. So thank you.
0: (laughs) Thank you, man. That makes me feel good because that's one of our company goals is to connect the best talent with the opportunities where everyone can thrive right? We don't believe in a zero sum game, you know, because that's scarcity mindset, you know, meaning like, one of us is going to win, right? So if it's not me, it's going to be you. And if one of us wins, one of us loses, right? It's like, the idea of mutuality, which is one of our values is like, we need each other, we're stronger together, we can all eat, we can all benefit, we can all thrive, right? It's not a zero sum, you know, and so that for us is something that we constantly try to live into. And we'll be upfront, like, if we don't got it, And we're all deciding together, like, this cause deserves this support, and they just don't have the budget. We've done projects for free, you know, because we've all agreed to lend our talent to this cause, right? Or we've reduced our fees significantly because we really believe in the project. And of course, you can't do that all the time, right? You have to balance that against projects that are making money, generating revenue. But there are times where we do it for less, but it's with the consent. Of our team, right, and 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 we are transparent. You know, if we say, "Hey, this is what the budget is," and doing this for less because we really believe in it. If you're down, you know, let's get busy. You know, and if you can't, no judgment, because people gotta pay their bills. They gotta take care of their families.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you really work with people with where they're at, and I love that. So I want to rewind back to BRL a mm-hmm. little bit. Can you name like a success story coming out of BRL? <laughs> Dude, there's so many, honestly. I mean, for me, the success
0: was, you know, if I zoom out, right, 30,000 feet, it was like, oh, we really created a new paradigm for mental health within the mental health field, right? We completely rewrote the book on that, right? That, to me, I'm incredibly proud of because, you know, we really pushed back on what The field was saying, like, this is how you best do therapy, right? Like, we totally reimagined that shit and created a new paradigm. And it inspired others to take that work and replicate it all over the world, right? And so, although, you know, we had very specific impact locally, the implications of our work had much broader reach. And to me, you know, people at the organization would sometimes, you know, get upset when they would see other people starting hip hop therapy programs and, trying to replicate the work of the organization, I'd be like, that's the hugest sign of flattery. And that's actually a sign of impact, because now you're having a broader impact beyond your direct service. You're actually shifting the way that people approach the work. To me, I'm incredibly proud of that. That's 30,000 feet. When you, you know we go down into the weeds, you know, of course, it's the impact on individual lives of young folks, you know, and you know, there's scores and scores of young folks, thousands of young folks that have gone through the program in in close to 20 years. Next year, and it's seeing their trajectories change, seeing them go back to that sense of self, belonging, and purpose. You know, um, having a negative sense of self and shifting that lens and that view of themselves and filling a sense of self worth and self confidence and supporting them to go beyond their perceived limitations and realizing oh shit I never thought I could rap before and now I'm on a track I never thought I could perform in front of a group full of people and now I'm performing you know at this concert venue and seeing them support each other to make that possible like that was beautiful too because you know oftentimes I think young people are capable of so much we give them so little credit but like They're capable of healing themselves and holding space for each other to heal. They're capable of lifting each other up, supporting each other. And hip-hop is allowed for all of this to happen organically. So, you know, we didn't do anything like that special that hip-hop wasn't already doing for young folks. But yeah, I mean, there's literally so many images uh,
1: and stories that come to mind. Was there anyone that went on to become successful in hip-hop that you know of? You know, a lot of our alumni have had
0: some commercial success, you know, some as independent artists, you know, the biggest commercial success has been the artist G.E.Z. He was a part of our first hip-hop therapy program in 2004 at Berkeley High School. And of course, you know, went on to study music industry studies at Loyola University and then have a very successful music career and, you know, is known by a lot of people throughout the world as a very successful hip hop artist and as somebody who has given back to the program over the years as well. But to me, success also looks like, you know, just are they living a good life? Are they happy? Have they been able to transcend the hardships that they face as young folks, right? That feel like, you know, I don't feel like I have a future or that I'm going to live past my twenties or, you know, transcend, you know, these circumstances that, most of them inherited, right? They didn't ask to be born into you know, communities that are plagued with the issues that they're trying to navigate. That to me, it was always the biggest marker for success is, are they living uh, happy, fulfilling lives? And do they feel like they can achieve what they set out to achieve? Do they have a sense of agency around that? And if they have a greater sense of agency, then we've done our job, right? Because again, that's moving them from a victim mentality to a creator mind or a survivor creator mind mentality worldview.
1: Mm -hmm. Amazing. I'm gonna rewind back a bit on my career. When I was doing my TV show back in the day, I used to go to a lot of conferences. Uh, I went to one called NatP, which is like a big TV conference. I don't know if they still have it, they might. But one big takeaway from that was this big executive said to never fall in love with your first idea, you know, because that first idea will most likely never be the one that takes you, you know, bring you money, you know, sustainability, you know. And I definitely felt that with a TV show I created, it was a passion project with hopes of it being the thing I do for the rest of my life. And it didn't turn out to be that way. Like I realized that and hearing that kind of helped me. It put that in my head, like, okay, m- let me be prepared in case this isn't what mm-hmm. I do for the rest of my life. And I know through conversations we've had, BRL was kind of that for you as well. Can you talk about kind of, I guess, the pain points of it being your first baby, you know, and how hard it was to leave that, you know, and then what you learned from that as well? You know? Oh, man.
0: Woo! <laughs> that, that 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 That's a whole podcast right there, man. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> oh, man. Um It was tough, you know, like, but there's this phenomenon in the social sector, nonprofit sector that folks call founder syndrome. And it's the idea that when you are a founder, when you create something, right, that you're very protective of it, that you, you know, pour a lot into it. And it's kind of like your identity and sense of value becomes fused with that thing right? And sometimes that thing needs you to play that role in order to push it forward. But there comes a point where it's time to separate. Just like with babies, babies are very dependent, right? On the adults in their lives and they can't do, you know, a lot for themselves. And then there comes a point where once you pour into that, it's time for that baby to individuate, to separate, right? To learn and to grow and to evolve. And if you smother that child at that point in time, right, it can have a devastating effect. Well, founder syndrome is the same way, right? Like when you create a company, an organization, especially one that's doing community-based work, there comes a point where for that organization to get to the next level and for that founder to get to the next level of their development, they need to separate. And usually, you know, founders sense when this time is coming. And for me, it was 11 years in, And it was very hard to acknowledge that I kind of stopped growing, had cycled through burnout so many times that I was starting to, in some ways, kind of resent the thing that I created. Not that I resented my staff or resented the youth. It wasn't that. It was more, you know, I lived five blocks from our headquarters. And I remember my walk to work was like the best part of my day because it was like I get to walk to a place that did not exist before in a headquarters at Peru Modeling. Like, this is amazing. I'm living the dream. And I remember one day I got up and I was walking to work and I was like, I felt this sense of dread. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Like, I've never felt that before. Like, I wonder what that's about. And then it kept coming back. Really, it was like this idea that like my time had come and the organization's time had come. And it, it was time for me to place myself in a different Situation and setting where I could explore other interests, where I can, you know, fuel my learning. And I didn't know what the future had. And so I didn't have like the next thing. I just knew it was time to go. And so, you know, I made that decision in July 2014. And after having panic attacks, (laughs) and, you know, I, I made the announcement, I gave myself six months and the organization six months to do succession planning. And I transitioned and fortunately, you know, in the time that I made that decision and I was trying to figure out, okay, what's next? The universe conspired and I got nominated for a fellowship at Stanford where I was able to continue independent research and learning and teach. I was also named a CNN hero, which I was able to leverage that accolade, you know, to garner other support and opportunities for some new ventures. And yeah, the universe placed in front of me opportunities to feel that growth, but it wouldn't have happened if I didn't take that leap, if I didn't have the courage to journey yet again. And even Beach Rhymes on Life was a huge leap of faith, right? Like I had a vision for what could be, I didn't know how to build it, create it. I didn't know if it was going to be successful, but I knew that this vision was unique to me because no one else was talking about hip hop therapy, at least in my circle, And so I felt like, okay, well, I've been blessed with this vision, like for a reason. Like maybe there's something about me that can make this possible for the world or for my community. And so, you know, I started that journey not knowing where I was going to end up, but I grew so much and I got so much from it, like so much I didn't even expect or anticipate. Like my life is completely different because of that. So I'm familiar with that idea of. My experience has been such that like when you listen to your intuition and your call to journey and you accept that and you embrace that, like wonderful things happen, even if they don't feel good in the moment, (laughs) but it's always in service of your higher self and evolution as a human being. And so that's been my experience and I trust that. And so I don't know uh, how long I'll be doing this, but I know that, you know, whatever I'm doing, it's going to be in service community. Uh, folks who support community. And that can take different forms and iterations. One of the th- blessings that came out of my work at Beats Rhymes of Life is I was named an Ashoka Fellow in 2014. And that's a lifetime fellowship. Ashoka is you know, one of the first organizations that coined the term social entrepreneur. And so they support over 4,000 social entrepreneurs in 92 different countries. So I'm a part of about, I want to say like, 2000 US based Ashoka fellows. And it's a lifetime fellowship because these people are relentless. Like they often start numerous social enterprises and organizations and companies. And, you know, because sometimes you build a vehicle to do the work that you think is the right vehicle and then A couple miles down the road, you realize this is the wrong vehicle. (laughs) You know, I got to build something different, right, that is going to allow me to scale or allow me to work in a way that the moment calls for. And so you have to be flexible. You have to be willing to adapt. You can't be married to the things that you create. And the lesson that I had to learn was you also can't confuse your identity and value with the thing that you create. Like, that's what we do. It's what we create. It's not who we are. We're much bigger than that. And if we get too wrapped up in like my value and my identity is this thing, and if I don't have this thing and or if it doesn't succeed, then I'm worthless. Like that's a trap.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. I hear you that. And just you having the courage to leave. I've done it myself, man. It's very hard to do to muster up the courage to leave something comfortable, something that you built. It becomes your identity, man. Like everyone knows you for that, and then leaving that is tough. But yeah, those experiences we really learned from it, and like. We just have the faith that you know, there is something better on the other side, you know what I mean? And that's kind of what I've learned from watching people like you, and that's given me the courage as well. But yeah, so I wanna ask you, so now I2F, I mean, really you've always been managing teams your whole career. What are the most important skills you think to be an effective manager of a team? You're the best boss I ever had, by the uh, way. <laughs> right
0: on. Um, <laughs> you know, emotional intelligence is huge. Being able to tune in to where people are at and what they're dealing with, like beyond the work, right, I think has been a strength of mine. It's allowed me to create an environment where people feel seen, they feel valued, they feel cared for. And I think that fosters trust and trust is everything. You know, that children's wellbeing initiative, one of the sayings that we had is that collaboration moves at the speed of trust. If you don't have trust in your team, they don't trust you to have their best interests. If you don't trust them to be responsible and do the right thing and not have to be micromanaged or babysat, you know, like we're all adults here, you know? And so, but it takes work to build trust, right? And really it's relationship is at the core of that. I've always been relationally driven, not transactionally driven, and, you know, it's those relationships that have, for me in my career as a social entrepreneur, has been the greatest form of currency. It don't matter if I got a budget, but if I got relationships, like I could get some shit done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, for me with managing teams, it's all about trust. Trust needs to be earned. And intentionality, right? I think that goes a long way as well. And I think finding the shared values, the shared vision. I really believe that people are yearning to be a part of something bigger than themselves, to have purpose in their lives, to have meaning in their lives, to do something worthwhile, you know, and they just don't have the outlet, you know? And so I love to come across a person who's super talented, who I know has that yearning and I'm like, hey, th- there's a home for you over here.
1: <laughs> Let's go fuck
0: some shit up. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Man, you've opened the doors for so many people. I love it, man. Can you talk about like a big I2F win moment, maybe monetary or even just like, you know, a shift in mindset or whatever, you know what I mean? Man, oh man. oh. I know there's a lot.
0: There, there, <laughs> there's a lot. I mean, our portfolio is incredible. You can check it out, Idea to Form. Idea of the number two, F-O-R-M dot com. It's online. We're about to redo our website to show more of our work because there's only a few samples up there. So the portfolio I'm incredibly proud of. We provide design services across four design pillars. That's branding, communications, web, and organizational design development. We've built web applications. Like, I never thought I'd ever be a part of a team building a web app. And we've done several of those. We've produced documentary films. I never saw myself as a part of a team to produce documentary films, but, you know, we got a couple under our belt that have won some awards. (laughs) Won some awards, you know? Shout out uh, (laughs) to the team, the video and photo team. Mm -hmm. To me, the best feeling is when I see people owning their agency and their role in the company and leading. We like to say we're building a leader full organization, not a leader centric organization. So although Lex and I are co-founders of Idea to Form, we're trying to create a company where everyone feels empowered to lead, you know, because in that kind of environment, you're not waiting for somebody to tell you what to do. You're not saying to yourself, well, it's not my job. That's your job. You know, if something is needed in the moment, anybody can step up, right? And they're encouraged to do that. Or if they sense something is off, everyone's encouraged to raise their hand and say, like, you know what? I don't think we're living into our values because this thing happened. We need to address it, right? Like, we want folks to feel empowered in that way because what we're trying to do at the end of the day is build a conscious company, a successful company, but a company that is living into its values is creating value for others is sharing that value in the most powerful way where you know everyone can benefit and thrive you know a company that is trying to constantly challenge itself and push itself to do better to do well and to do good and to do right by its people and its clients it's going to be a destination we never get to you know like we'll get better at things but there's always going to be room for growth and so you know for me I love seeing our project managers and our staff lead meetings, set agendas, you know, take on projects, feel a sense of ownership in the company and in the process. To me, that's like, oh yeah, okay, we're on the right path, you know, and we are building that leaderful organization and that's really gonna differentiate us from other companies that are more transactionally driven or are more person-centric, right? Cause you take that person out of the mix, what happens, it falls apart. But like, if you're building a leaderful organization, it's very resilient. You can get more done because there's less bottlenecks. Decision making is decentralized, right? It's democratized, and and that's really the world that we're living in. Things are moving. You know, organizations are becoming more flat, less hierarchical. hierarchical. <laughs> Uh, Uh, (laughs) hierarchical you still (laughs) said it wrong i i i I struggle with that word but anyhow (laughs) i'm not even trying to say it because i
1: know i'll say it wrong (laughs) no but what i love about i2f is like you said like it is a team full of leaders you know and conscious leaders at that i mean so much so that like a lot of people have businesses of their own you know and very successful freelancers as well, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's all, and that's also encouraged in yeah. a lot of companies that's not encouraged. Like, can you explain why like you encourage people to just, yeah, create your own business, do your own freelance work on the side. Like even yeah. if it's outside of I2F, like, like what, what's your thought on encouraging that for your team? You know, again, it comes back to
0: abundance mindset versus scarcity mindset, right? Scarcity mindset says, if you're gonna work for us, you know, you can't do your own thing cause that's competition. But abundance mindset says, no, there's enough work out there. There's enough resource out there. There's enough need, certainly enough need for our skill set as creatives out there. And actually, if you're out there doing other projects, you're mastering your craft. You're getting better at what you do, right? And of course, why wouldn't we want to support that? And again, it's not transactional. It's not like I'm hiring you to work for me and that's all I want you to think about and do, right? Because... If it's relationally based then I'm invested in your growth and development as a person, as a professional, if I support you in doing that, then you only have more to offer our team and our clients, right? And then I can't tell you how many times at that, that, you know, for some people, I get it, that would feel counterintuitive. It would feel like, well, doesn't that create a conflict of interest or What about boundaries? You know, or all these things. And of course, we have boundaries. We have healthy boundaries. You know, people know that it's inappropriate to solicit work when you're doing work for us. And fortunately, we're not really working with people who would do that, exhibit that type of lack of sensitivity and self centeredness. But so often, folks have come back to us and said, Hey, I'm working with a person on this project. I think they could really benefit from the support of the broader team, can I make an introduction? We've actually gotten so much work because of that. Um, And so for us, it's like, again, that to me is, it proves the case, right? Like that's one of many reasons why working this way is just better. It makes business sense, but it's also the right thing to do because folks are used to being exploited, extracted for their value and not appropriately compensated right? And it's like, that's the common experience. And so, you know, folks are protective of themselves in those spaces, but when they feel like they can trust you and, you know, they believe in what you're doing, they work harder. They're more generous. So like, if we can help you as a creative, be stronger, support this podcast, you know, support art of storytelling, there comes a time where, you know, we want to support our collaborators, but there's times where we need our collaborators to support us. So, if they're strong, if we help them to become strong, then it can very well benefit us and help us when we get in a tough spot, right? Because we're all going to be in a tough spot at some point in time in our journey, right? We're all going to need support. And so, that's kind of my philosophy is like, and I've seen it work, you know, peaks and valleys, right? Where I've been at the top and I'm like, oh man, I'm balling out like I have all this like let me start giving it away you know and then there's times where it's like I'm in the valley and I'm like damn like I'm in kind of in a hard spot and then like my community shows up right and I'm just like oh okay like that's how it works right and so that's how we kind of approach those relationships with our collaborators
1: yeah and I know early on when we were really expanding on the video and photo portion like there was clients that You were approaching, and then you would hit me up and be like, "Can you give me examples of of videos that you did like this?" You know what I mean? And you're asking for my personal work, which I was happy to give over to show examples of what we could do. But that led to landing these clients that paid probably some of the biggest checks I've ever had, man. You know what I mean? So like that's just an example of like encouraging people to do their own thing and letting them expand, because then you have access to like a wider group of people that you didn't have before, you know, a wider skill set and a wider network. So I love that approach. I've always taken that. Even when I worked for big corporations that didn't encourage it, I still encouraged that, you know what I mean? Because that's just the way I've always worked. But speaking of exploiting people, let's talk about about the scope creeps. (laughs) Oh man, the scope creeps. (laughs) So uh, a scope creep, also I've heard it termed scope drift, is a term that creative professionals use to describe when a client's expectations or deliverables increase over time without any conversation about money or time compensation. Can you share one of your biggest scope creep stories? We've all had them. Yeah.
0: I mean, I probably look at this a little differently. You know, we work with nonprofits, which are comprised of really amazing people that mean well, that want to make the world a better place. You know, one of my favorite quotes is, The path to hell is paved with good intentions, right? And there's a lot of blind spots that we all have, right? And I think that there's times where, you know, I don't think it's intentional or it's malice or it's ill intent that like there, our clients are trying to take advantage of us, but there are times where there's not a strategy, right? And what we've learned is that some folks don't know what they want, right? And they're figuring it out. And sometimes they're using the design process to get, greater clarity around what it is they're trying to achieve, it's until you have that clarity around what you're trying to achieve, then you can can get the most out of a process that says, how how are we going to achieve it, right? And then let's start to define that strategy and implement that strategy. And so we've actually designed a four-phase design process, which starts with discovery, which is looking at everything, what are the challenges, the design challenge, the pain points, the problem, the opportunity... It moves from discovery into design. We're designing the strategy for what it is that we're trying to do, the strategic objectives. And then, you know, once we get solid on a strategy, we move into the third phase, which is transformation. So that's when we actually implement the strategy. And then the final stage is transition. That's when we turn over our designs, you know, or whatever assets that we create, you know, to the client, client team and really ensure a successful transition of the project and the knowledge from the project. And that's like a four phase design process, but it's not linear. It could be cyclical, right? And so, you know, oftentimes what we've realized is that scope drift happens because we didn't spend enough time in discovery, Wait. really understanding what the challenges are. Oftentimes clients will approach us and they'll say, we want this, right? And they'll name something specifically like a documentary film. And we'll say, okay, great. like." If we just jumped into work starting to give them that without exploring like, well, why do you want that? What do you believe that is going to allow you to do? What are you trying to accomplish? Who are you trying to reach, right? Like ask all those questions that we do in discovery, then you know, we're not gonna get to the core of what problem they think that that solution is going to solve, right? And then oftentimes you realize it's like, oh, wow, like you said, don't fall in love with the thing that you create. Well, yeah, I think that scope drift is inevitable, at least for our work, because these groups and organizations are constantly having a pivot and they're working in pretty intense circumstances, right? Where they have to be flexible. And so, you know, we also have to be flexible, but we also have to balance that against being authentic and being transparent, right? And if a pivot happens at a necessity, then we have a conversation with the client and say, okay, we're no longer doing what we said we were going to do, we have to revisit this, right? And so we'll have a rescoping conversation. And because, you know, the boundaries are there to protect both of us, right? And to keep us focused and to get the most out of the collaboration and exchange. And so I think what often happens is with scope drift is folks start to feel resentful. They start to feel taken advantage of. And no one's having the conversation about like, well, how do we get here? Let's understand how we got here. And maybe it's something I did, something we you did. We both did, you know, we both contributed to it. And so, you know, what can we learn from it and what can we do differently next time? I can't tell you how many times we've had those conversations. Every project, we do a project debrief, retrospective, where we look at as a team, how the project went, you know, what were some of the challenging aspects of it? What are the things we're most proud of? What went well? You know, what do we want to change about our processes? for the next set of projects that will ensure a more productive collaboration. And so we're constantly iterating on our process and our best practices because of that. And I can honestly say that Scope Drift has decreased significantly because we've built into our process, a process for reflection and review and um, process
1: for updating our best practices. Yeah, I love that, man. Like I love your view on Scope Drift because it really comes from a place of compassion. You know, like there might be a client that says like, oh, oh we want an extra 20 photos or something. And if it's nothing for us to just give them an extra 20 photos and it's for the greater good of the campaign, then let's just do it. You know what yeah. I mean? But there is some people where they're so firm, like, oh, it's not on paper. We didn't agree on that, you know, and it's the outcome may not be as impactful as if you just worked with them and it's just a little bit extra. So I really love that. And I've also worked with people that where they just got... Stepped all over by the client, man, you know what I mean, so it's a it's a touchy situation, but yeah, we haven't dealt with that too much at i two f
0: yeah, we had one client in six years that we had to fire, oh really, yeah, and it wasn't a good fit, you know, we were not aligned on our values, and we didn't realize that till we were well in the project, and it got to a point you know for me, it was like, okay, well. You know, this work can be hard and I give people the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, when the client started unfairly critiquing our staff and accusing our staff of missteps and not taking any accountability or responsibility for their role and failing to communicate certain things and changing their mind. And that's when, for me, it felt like, okay, this is becoming a toxic environment and this is not conducive, you know, to our team. And also the client is frustrated. And so like, this is not, it's like dating, right? Like sometimes it just doesn't, you know, it's not a good fit. And, um, that actually really taught us a lot. Like after that client and experience, we created a criteria to vet every opportunity that comes into idea to form because for us at the end of the day, it's like, we don't just say yes because we can make money and then we tolerate mistreatment (laughs) because we're getting paid. Right? Like, we're really here to make an impact and we want to work with values-aligned organizations of forward-thinking organizations, and we want to do great work together. And so our fourth step criteria is, are we mission? Are we values aligned, right? That's the first one. Do we share the same values? If we don't, sorry, we can't work with you. <laughs> the second one is, is the project economically viable, right? Like is what they're asking for commiserate with the budget? The third one is really about feasibility, right? They may have the budget, but they're asking for what would take a year to do it in three months, right? And it's just not feasible. They don't know how long this stuff actually takes, right? And so sometimes their expectations are way off and it's not feasible. And then the last one is readiness. Are they ready to work with us? And sometimes it's like, they're not. They have to get in alignment with each other first because they don't even agree as a team what they want, right? And you talk about scope drift, That's sometimes the issue is that the team that you're working with lacks alignment with each other. That's how we vet every single opportunity that we take on. Is it values aligned? Is it economically viable? Is it feasible? And is this group ready to work with our team? And if we have a yes across the board, then we work with them. And if we don't, then we assess and we have a conversation and we determine as a team, is this something that we're willing to take on Because if they're not ready, it may require that we write into the project, you know, a bigger discovery period, you know, or we help them to get ready and do some preliminary work. And then we kick off a project together, you know, Um, but we never compromise on the values aligned thing. And that's what that client taught us is like, okay, well, it was a great project. It had a great budget. It was with a big name, you know, foundation was backing it, you know, but that person was just, Their values were out of line. They didn't share Mm. our values and it made the work impossible.
1: Yeah, man, I've been there. (laughs) Yeah, and one thing like I like to always let freelance creatives know is that like you have a valuable skill, man, and people need you. And you have the power to say no when you don't want to. You know what I mean? So, I mean, sure, like early on in your career, you might have to take some work that you don't want to do. You know, it might not get paid as much as you want. But when you're confident in your skill set and you know people need what you can offer, you have the power to say no to certain people and it'll benefit you in the long run, man. Like, I've been stuck in so many of those situations where I just couldn't stand the person I was working for. You know what I mean? And it takes years off your life, man. You know what I mean? It really does. Okay, just a last set of questions here. So, what does the next five years look like to you? As a company, I did a form the next five years. You know,
0: like I said, we're six years in and I would love for us to start creating our own knowledge products, sharing out some of our best practices for the field, for other people who are designing for social impact. I have no desire nor Lex to be the king or the queen of the hill. We want to build the hill, uh-huh. right? Like we want to build the platform that other folks can participate And lend their creative talents to these organizations, these causes that need that support, and find a way to create and support an ecosystem of creative change makers, change leaders. And so, you know, I see us being a convener, I see us being a content creator, a curator, I see us you know, uh, uh, underwriting our own projects. Like we we literally have the capacity as a team to design and build our own app and maintain it. We have the capacity as a team to do product design, to do our own films, to create our own content. This podcast is an example of that, right? Like Uh our our uh team is very multi-talented and we're all thought leaders. And so, yeah, we want to create a platform to support our community, to build our community up, to create a broader ecosystem. I think the long-term view is democratizing design, right? Making design accessible to all communities that are trying to solve their problems, democratizing design in the sense that making design more accessible to under-resourced nonprofits. That means that we have to insert ourselves into the different conversations, especially with foundations that support these causes, that give money, that do grant making to start to think about ways that they can make investments in helping to build strategic capacity for nonprofits and also to build out this broader ecosystem. Because idea to form as a company cannot be the end-all be-all, right? That's why we take a network approach, a community approach, ecosystem approach to meeting the needs of our constituents. Because there may be a moment where we're locked up, we're at capacity, but this cause needs this video, right? And then we can go to our roster of videographers, photographers, right graphic designers and so yeah, you know we want to see our comrades be our creative comrades be successful and ideally you know we're in a position where we can make investments in their projects and in their learning and growth and development and so that's the goal you know we say to become a preeminent design studio, but for us, that doesn't mean being the king of the hill. It means actually building out a platform that can uplift our community and increase access to design for under-resourced communities and groups.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And just just to provide clarity to listeners, the democratizing design for social impact is a very specific initiative and kind of the next evolution of I2F. And we discussed it yesterday. Yeah. I'm, I'm super excited, man. It's, it's a genius idea, uh, something that's very needed. Uh, solve so many problems and um, and everyone can win from it. So man, I'm so excited. Once we launch that, we'll have another conversation yes. and talk on the podcast about it, man. Yes, sir. So a couple more questions. Um, if you could say anything to the young you, what would it be? To the young me?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's do it. No, <laughs> no. Nah, nah, I don't regret anything. Um, any Anything to the young me. One of my mantras, uh, every day I say this, is all that I need lies within, all that I need comes to me. And I would say that, and I would also break that down a little bit for my young self and say like sometimes if you believe all that you need comes to you, it's not always going to look good. It's not always going to feel good. Sometimes the universe puts in your path certain challenges or trials and tribulations that are actually in service of your higher self. Even if you don't know how they are or why they are in the moment, It just you just know it doesn't feel good and that you're not where you want to be, right? But sometimes rejection is redirection, right? Sometimes failure is actually where you do your greatest learning, right? And so I would say trust in the process, right? And believe that all that you need lies within. So no matter what life puts in front of you, Like you have a reserve, a power inside of you, a knowledge inside of you, an intelligence inside of you, that if you can learn to tap into it, you're going to be fine. It doesn't matter what life puts in front of you. And you can trust that whatever life puts in front of you is exactly what you need, even if it doesn't look the way that you desire and that that you hope, right? You just have to trust in that process. And then you'll be able to connect the dots later, looking back, right? Like how this... Really hard experience served you or made you a better person.
1: Mm -hmm. Totally, man. And in closing, I like to end with a segment called "Drop a Gem on (laughs) Them." Once again, again. again, drop a gem on. So I mean, it's hard because like this whole podcast is. been gems man like every time you speak like it, gems come out <laughs> yeah. but if you can leave everybody with just one gem what would it be Jeez, you're getting me you're getting so, know there's one. many there's many
0: <laughs> on the spot
1: <laughs> well i'll say this man like i have in my notepad on my computer i have a tab called tomas and it's just all quotes that you've told me man like i know <laughs> i can't like, think of one right now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can't think of one okay i'll say one that you told me and you just said it earlier, rejection is redirection. Mm. Uh, when I had probably one of the most challenging times of my life, I always spoke to you whenever I had issues. And that line right there, rejection is redirection. I faced some pretty big rejection at the time. And you said Re- rejection is redirection. And it just clicked like, okay, oh, it's not all bad. There's something on the other side that's greater for me. Sure enough, man, like things changed. And now I'm I'm like, I'm feeling like these are the best days of my life, man. You know what I mean? And that gem that you gave me, I've shared with so many other people and it's been something that's been a value to me, but also something that I share with everyone. So yeah, there you tons go. Tons of gems, man. <laughs> that's it. Rejection <laughs> is redirection. <That's>, is redire- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's, that's my
0: gem. It's a powerful one. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, it really is, man. It really is. So, you know, um, and I think that within that, you need faith, right? You need to have faith that you're going to be okay. Right. And that um, sometimes, you know, uh, yeah, God, the universe is not going to give you anything you can't handle. Right. And like it's forging. Sometimes we need to go through a forging process. Right. But like when metal is forged, right. It's, it's, it's subjected to some pretty extreme situations, but that's when it becomes its strongest. Right. Mm -hmm. Whether it's glass or metal. And so, you know, hardship, is learning to be comfortable with being uncomfortable.
1: Like Maybe. that
0: is actually
1: one of the keys to success. Man. Right? Ah, yep, yep. Oh, so many gems, man. Stop <laughs> with the gems, Too many. <laughs> All right, so if people wanna know how to keep up with you with I2F, how can people do it?
0: Yeah, I would say follow us on social media. You know, our team is, is doing a great job with our Instagram account, um, at idea, the number two, F-O-R-M, idea to form. Uh, they can visit ideatoforum. We're going to have a, a, a upgraded website in the next couple of months. We're going to be launching a shop. Um, many of our creatives um, are going to be designing, you know, some cool uh, swag and posters and merch. Um, but eventually, yeah, we'll we'll be designing our own knowledge products and selling them there on, on the shop. Um and yeah, I mean I they can hit me up, you know, Tomas at ideataforum.com to um if they want to collaborate with us um or learn more. Uh but yeah, those are the touch points uh right now. Um but yeah, check us out.
1: Cool. Right on, thanks, Tomas. Appreciate yep. it, man. Is there- <laughs> I told you, gems. Plenty of gems. Sometimes I don't understand. How Tomas drops so many gems. I feel like Tomas only speaks in gems, in quotes, in quotables. One day, you know what? I'm going to approach Tomas. I'm going to say, let's write a book similar to the Drake poetry book that's just called Tomas Gems. Each page, One or two lines Just gems And I'll draw rare gems Next to each oil I'm manifesting that now To be sold 2025 holiday Stay tuned But on that note I want to thank everyone for listening to the first episode Of Rel and Friends podcast If you want to hit me up again Rel.mov on IG I forget my name on TikTok But you can start following me there before I start posting And yeah, we have an email as well, relandfriendspod at gmail.com. I do not check that, but my homie John Will. Shout out to John, who is producing this, John Reyes, a.k.a. Stank Palmer. Uh, If you're in the Bay Area, make sure you check him out as well. World-renowned DJ, party professional, and I am Rail, And we out. See you next time. Peace.